crunching data. That's the key to really understanding how governments work. Digging out unique narratives, then telling the story. And putting a voice to all that data? Well, that's the job of the monthly with Senator Pamela Wallen. Welcome to the monthly. My thanks to Greg McDougall and Steve Saunders at Government Analytics. I am your host, Pamela Wallen. Today on the monthly, MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. The proponents believe that it frees us from the orthodoxy of a bygone era where budgets needed to be balanced. And if you spent money, you had to tax to pay for it. MMT says, as countries, we can't go broke because we can use central banks to print the money we need, and that's the right thing to do. Dr. Stephanie Kelton is with us today, the author of The Deficit Myth, and she is a leading proponent of MMT. She's professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University, Long Island, New York. Also joining us today, Marc-André, Dr. Marc-André Pigeon, Assistant Professor at the johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan, Director of the Centre for Study of Cooperatives. And I might just say, for those that don't know, Johnson and Shoyama, two very well-known gentlemen, uh, started out their government public service careers in Saskatchewan and went on to shape the country directly through their work in Ottawa. So that is why the school is named. Welcome to you both. Glad to have you here. Stephanie, this is uh, a real treat. And we understand that this is actually the anniversary, the first anniversary of the publication of your book. It is. Today is the, is the birthday. Uh, the book was published one year ago today. So um, that's exciting. The, the edition that you just held up uh, is three months old today. That's the paperback edition. And there's yes. a, a new introduction that I wrote for that edition. But yeah, the original came out exactly one year ago. Because, of course, in the midst of preparing, preparing this and writing all of this, the pandemic was unfolding. And then uh, by the time you got to this version, of course, had unfolded. So let's walk through some of this because we have seen extraordinary spending uh, by governments in both of our countries in response to the pandemic. And now that things are starting to settle a bit, fingers crossed, um, people are wondering now what we're going to do with the kind of spending that we've seen in this country, a debt of close to $2 trillion if you count, uh, you know, our, our uh, crown corporations and things like that, but $1.2 trillion for sure. Those are extraordinary numbers in this country, uh, one-tenth the size of yours. You say the only risk of debt is inflation. So what do you think is happening? Well, I think that we are digging out of a very deep hole. I think that the policy response, not just in Canada and in the US, but really globally, this time was much more impressive to me, much more encouraging, let's say, because you know, after the financial crisis, essentially here in the US, we got one fiscal package. And there was a lot of hand-wringing at the time about the price tag, right? And senior advisors around then, um, uh, what do you, what's the proper phrase? Before you take, before you're inaugurated, president-elect, president yes. Obama, <laughs> right? Um, in the transition team, uh, there were a lot of voices around him who were saying, listen, you cannot break this trillion dollar ceiling. You will give people sticker shock. This is too big. We have to downsize this package. We'll push for something on the order of 800 billion or so. What we ended up with was a $787 billion fiscal package that was very front loaded with tax cuts. More than a third of the total package was tax cuts and a lot of so-called shovel ready infrastructure and so forth. We got this package through it was $787 billion and that's all we got. Really, that's about all we got in terms of fiscal because politicians got cold feet. Everybody started hand-wringing over the impact mm -hmm. on the deficit and the debt. And it became clear to almost all economists 
after a very short period of time that more fiscal support was needed. But the appetite wasn't there because everyone was worried. We're looking across the pond. We see what's happening in Europe. Many countries gripped by a debt crisis, Greece and Spain, Italy, Portugal, and so on. And we started hearing this narrative on our nightly news. I mean, we, we were pounded uh, by the press and the media here about what was happening in Europe being the canary in the coal mine for us, that this was the warning for the United States of America. If we didn't get our fiscal house in order, we were gonna end up just like the Greeks, just like Spain, just like Italy. Right. Interest rates would, would spike, in, uh, investors would refuse to lend, and you would find yourself in a, in a real debt crisis. And so fast forward, right? Here we are, coronavirus hits, we get in the US a $2.2 trillion CARES Act passed very quickly. Congress yep. moved quickly. And then it sort of dragged its feet and the deficit stuff came back a little bit. And there was this belief that maybe Congress had done enough uh, and the economy was going to rebound more quickly. And then it finally dawned on them that that was not the case. By December, we got another package, $800 billion. And then just a minute or two later, I mean, a few months later, yeah. President Biden is inaugurated and we get a $1.9 trillion COVID rescue package. So the point I'm trying to make is that the policy response was much more robust this time. Policymakers did not withdraw prematurely fiscal support. They stayed in the game. And not only that, President Biden is back now saying it's not enough to just do you know, relief and rescue, you have to lay a foundation for a sustainable and inclusive recovery. And he wants to spend about $4 trillion more. So that's the answer to your question, where we are now, we're in a much better place than we were, but we're having some trouble pushing this next package through. And in part, it's because of this fear of doing anything that adds to the deficit. So would you say, would you describe what uh, what President Biden, uh, Biden et al are doing uh, is an embrace of modern monetary theory? Well, look, MMT is a, a macro framework, right? It's not a package of policies. It's not something you implement or adopt. It's a way of thinking about, a way of approaching Correct. the budgeting process. So when they did 2.2 trillion CARES last March, when they did the 800 billion in December, when they did the COVID 1.9 this March, is that consistent with the MMT way of thinking? Yes. The, the MMT way of thinking is to recognize that you have as the currency issuer, the spending capacity, the capacity to spend, and that when you are not at risk of, of generating undesirable inflation, when you have the fiscal space, let's say, when the economy is depressed enough, that it can safely absorb that spending and you don't need the offsets. The offsets are there, these so-called pay-fors. The reason you build in pay-fors is to mitigate the risk of your own spending triggering too much inflation. But if you recognize that there's enough fiscal space available to you, low-hanging fruit, you can spend safely without the need to offset the spending. And by the way, the offsets just undermine the stimulus. Right? Yeah, I want to get into that whole discussion, but first let me just bring in uh, Marc-André if I can for a moment and, and pose the same question because we're, we're seeing the government here um, use the central bank, uh, use the Bank of Canada to say, you know, keep printing that money, we'll keep buying those bonds, and they have extended the programs, the pandemic relief programs as well. So do you think there is an embrace of that in this country as well? I think I would align with Stephanie and say that the actions look, you know, could be reconciled with an MMT perspective. I don't think there's a wholesale adoption by any stretch um, amongst policymakers. I think we've seen actual disavowals um, by Minister Freeland and, and her predecessor. So I, I don't think I don't think we're there in terms of accepting the ideas. But I think in practice, we're doing things that are not inconsistent, I'd say. Uh, you know, yeah. this, the uh, you know, I might just also add that the, the trajectory that Stephanie described in the United States has strong parallels in Canada. Of course, we came out of that last crisis with a very modest, by today's standard, uh, deficit, 40 billion or something to that effect. And, and we quickly moved it back to surplus. And, and we forget, I think in 2015, Canada experienced a small recession, um, partly, I think, because of that fiscal retrenchment. So I, I think we're learning some lessons, but uh, it's still, I think there's some way to go. 
Okay, what we're going to try and do now is the deficit myth 101 here. Uh, I loved a phrase that I read from uh, Ben Bernanke, who, of course, the former Fed chair, who said the thing about modern monetary theory is that um, it, it works in theory, it just doesn't make any no, it works in practice. It just doesn't make any sense in theory, which uh, I thought was an interesting assessment that if you look at it, it does mean big bills and all of that. But he said he saw some evidence of it working. So let's let's walk through it. You argue that the in the US and it's true in Canada as well, that uh the banks, the Fed, the Bank of Canada is a public monopoly and governments can never run out of money. They can't face insolvency because they can always create, print the money to do what they need to do. Explain that. Okay, let me do so by way of slight correction to okay. the way that you put that because what MMT demonstrates, okay, MMT is about explaining how a sovereign currency works. And that includes the mechanics of government finance. So what we're doing is laying out an accurate description of how the government actually spends. And when you get the mechanics of the monetary system right, what you learn, what I learned, okay, and I had to work through this because I didn't understand this initially, and it took me some time. What I learned is that all government spending is always and everywhere only carried out via new money creation. There's no other way for it to work. So MMT is not a proposal to print money. It's not a way of saying, you know, we could finance the spending by printing money. It recognizes that all government spending is already carried out by the central bank, changing the numbers up in the appropriate bank accounts. And every time Congress authorizes one of these fiscal packages, the way the money gets spent is that the government's fiscal agent, the central bank, makes the payments on that are authorized by Congress on behalf of Treasury. And how it does that, I mean, let's just keep it real, right? How it does that in the modern era is through keystrokes. It uses the, the computer, which by the way, since you like Bernanke so much, I'll give, you, <laughs> I'll give you another Bernanke quote. Ben Bernanke, when President Obama, when Obama was president and the wheels were coming off the economy and the deficit was exploding, we had the fiscal rescue package and so forth. Here is Ben Bernanke, ben Bernanke on TV in an interview and he is asked, is that taxpayer money that the government is spending? And he responds, it's not taxpayer money. We simply use the computer to mark up the size of the account. Those are, that is an exact quote from, from the Fed chairman. So when these guys are, you know, put on in, in a position where they're asked to be very candid about the mechanics and how it all works, they will, they will level with you and tell you that, you know, we, we issue new currency when the government spends. And then when people pay taxes, we remove currency and it goes to the graveyard. So governments that run deficits are just doing what I call net spending, right? The deficit is just adding more than you subtract, which means you're crediting more bank accounts than you're debiting. So that means the rest of the economy is left with some surplus dollars. That could be a very good thing. But you you did say and you do believe that deficits matter. So I, I, I do want to you you've argued that they can be too big and the evidence of of deficits being too big, of course, is inflation. But you've also argued in the book that they can be too small um, to support the demand that's there. And the evidence of that is unemployment. So those two things always need to be in balance. Exactly right. That's exactly right. So I would never and have never taken the position that deficits don't matter. Every deficit is good for someone. That's the thing that people are really missing, right? <laughs> we, we, we run away from this word because we have this visceral reaction to the idea of a deficit. We hear the word and we think, well, that's obviously a negative thing. You don't want to turn on the TV and, and find out that your favorite sports team is trying to overcome a 12-point deficit at halftime. You know, that, that word is loaded. And so we respond to it. So the first thing I like to do is just say, let's be honest, every deficit is good for someone. Why? Because on the other side of every government deficit lies a financial surplus in some other part of the economy. 
Okay, it, 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 that is just by definition, the reality. If the government is running a trillion dollar deficit, then the non-government sector is getting a trillion dollar financial surplus. That's well, the way it works. People are benefiting from programs or yeah, whatever so, it is. Yes, well, and no, in financial terms, right? Not just the benefits of any okay. you know, useful spending yep. that might be undertaken, but even if, even if it's a pretty unproductive use of the deficit, we got these huge tax cuts passed by Republicans here in December of 2017. They will add over time, $1.9 trillion to government deficits. But look, those deficits are good for someone too. They produce a financial windfall on the other side in the same magnitude. That's why I have a chapter in the book called their red ink is our black ink, right? right. You have to look at what's happening on the other side of the ledger. So yes, the deficit could be too big and evidence of a deficit that's getting too big could be inflation, but the deficit can also be too small. And that's what Mark Andre was saying that both in the US and in Canada, there was a period of time where government budgets moved into surplus. They, that is, uh, in both of our cases, that was followed very soon by a recession. And so unemployment increases and you get the deficit beginning to widen uh, at that point. We tend to look at this issue, though, um, as individuals through what it would mean in our household. A household deficit is a really big problem. Uh, you can't spend more than you earn or you're going to lose the house or the kids won't eat. Uh, so it's a different thing than governments running deficits. It is a very different thing because a household can't issue the currency. If I had the power of the purse that Congress has, that the founders gave, right, in the Constitution, the founders gave unto Congress the sole exclusive authority to issue the currency. It's in Article I, Section 8 of the US Constitution. So if I try to create the dollar, it's called counterfeiting, I go to jail. But if I had the same powers given to me by the founders, if they had been smart, they would have thought ahead to empower Kelton so that I would never have to worry about missing a mortgage payment, not being able to send my kids to a uh, you know, summer camp, paying my electric bill, buying food. I'd never have to worry about running out of money. I can't do that. So yes, there's a big difference. Now I can spend more than my income for a period of time. If I'm able to find someone who's willing to lend to me, I can borrow dollars, but I have to pay interest and markets will decide, the lender will decide on the interest rate that I have to pay. But again, the federal government is very different as the issuer of the currency never has to borrow its own currency from anyone in order to spend. The US government doesn't need to go to China to get the dollar. There's a lot of stuff that comes with a little sticker that says made in China. The US dollar is not one of them right? That's our currency. We don't have to borrow it from anyone in order to spend. And we certainly don't have to pay so-called market rates of interest on U.S. treasuries that we choose to offer. We can also set the interest rate. But we do um, have, I mean, certainly in, in this country, the numbers that, that government analytics are running now tell us that we can't even think about uh, dealing with the deficit until 2060. This is generational debt, uh, Marc-Andre, I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that. There's, we're a smaller economy. We, we don't have the kind of levers that the Americans do. Yeah, I mean, I think Stephanie might want to have a few thoughts. We'll have a few thoughts on this as well. But I think right now, I, you know, this again, as Stephanie would have said earlier, you know, this, we are a sovereign country with our own currency. Mm -hmm. We don't face those constraints either. And I think some of the recent evidence you see with the Canadian dollar appreciating in value um, gives you, you know, up 10 cents from last summer, yep. uh, for example. That's that's telling you that something important is happening here, that the markets don't see a risk here. Uh, I think there's just a lot of rhetoric about risk. Uh, and then again, a reminder that, as Stephanie was saying, every deficit is somebody's benefit. There's a there's a yeah. black ink side to that red ink. And, and maybe the last thing I'd say, too, is that, you know, when you think about intergenerational liabilities, I, I think in terms of real, real liabilities, right? Are we are we leaving an environment that's not hospitable? Are we making sure our children have good education, good health care? Uh, those are the real legacies that I think matter. And the, the, the financial recording of that, the accounting side of that is, is, a, is a residual in a sense. It's not, it's not as important as those real things. And I think that's where we need to keep our, our focus on those real um, intergenerational issues. 
That was the other example you used, Stephanie, of sort of the war bonds post-war uh, World War II and whether that was a, a burden on the next generation or a legacy for the next generation. And, and you argue the latter, that programs, as Marc-Andre was saying, were created, that there were um, there was a different relationship between the citizen and the state, and they benefited from that relationship. And we have to look at that when we justify cost. Yes, those bonds are the financial assets to the holders of those bonds. They're part of their wealth. They're part of their financial savings. So um, I want to say something, though, about what Marc-Andre just said about sure. focusing on the real. And, um, I, and I, this time I'm going to bring in Alan Greenspan. I thought you might be about to, to do that quote because uh, this tags on so nicely to what. OK, and then we'll do Larry Summers, but go okay. ahead. OK. <laughs> So, so this is the key point. Marc-Andre is hitting it exactly correctly. That Canada is in the same um, position vis-a-vis -vis the Canadian dollar that the US government is in vis-a-vis -vis the US dollar in the sense that both of our governments are issuers of a non-convertible, that is a floating exchange rate. Government doesn't promise to convert its currency on demand into gold or silver or any other country's currency, Not, nothing it could run out of. They are currency issuers. So when Alan Greenspan was Fed chairman, he has to go before Congress for routine testimony and so forth. And at one point, he was asked about this intergenerational uh, burden, this idea that, you know, we've got Social Security, we have Medicare, we have these so-called entitlement programs, and many people believe that they are financially unsustainable. We've overpromised, and we're not going to be able to make good on these promises. And under oath, Greenspan was asked, don't you agree with me that now is the time to begin to change these programs, to modify them, find ways to, to save what we can of the system, but we're going to have to make some major changes. And Greenspan's response was perfect. He said, and this was to then uh, House uh, Speaker Paul Ryan, he said, there's nothing unsustainable with the way the system is set up today. These are his exact words. There's nothing to prevent the federal government from creating as much money as it wants and paying it to someone. Ooh, whoa, right? What Greenspan did was take the affordability question off the table, but he replaced it with something that really matters. And this is Mark Andre's point. He said, the question is, how do you set up a system which assures that the real assets are created, which those benefits are employed to purchase. That's the full quote. And what he means is we have demographic changes. We have an aging workforce, 10,000 people on average every day in this country move out of the workforce and into retirement. We are promising to pay benefits to future retirees, their dependents, the disabled. We're promising Medicare when you reach the age of 65. We can meet the financial burden. That's easy, Greenspan said. All you have to do is send the check out. There's no problem. The real challenge is how do you make sure that your economy is productive enough in 5, 10, 20, 30 years so that when those benefit checks go out, people can turn around and spend that money back into an economy that's producing enough goods and services so that you don't get an inflation problem. That's the whole concern is the real productive capacity of the economy to meet that demand in the future, not this financial stuff that always dominates all of the debates. And I think that's what we're looking at in the in the spending in both countries and the criticism of the budget here. And I don't expect you to be aware of it, Stephanie, obviously, but that there's an awful lot of spending and there's an awful lot of program spending, which certainly helps individuals in the short term. But if you're not actually putting money, uh, spending money that's going to encourage real economic growth and real productivity, then this is where you really risk uh, inflation coming back to, to bite you seriously. And we've had even the, uh, the parliamentary budget officer in this country and David Dodge, the former governor of the bank, saying that this is not a growth budget that we've got. We've, we've got that short-term spending. Uh, do you see it differently in your country? And then I'm gonna come back to Marc-Andre for his thoughts. 
good because I know that he can speak much, much right. more intelligently to the Canadian situation. Yeah, of course. But, know, yeah. yeah, exactly what's in the $100 billion reset. My impression, and he will correct me if I'm wrong, is that there is a great deal of the kind of investment that would be productivity enhancing for the longer term in the Canadian reset uh, budget. So here in the US, what are we hearing? We're hearing about an American jobs plan and an American families plan, so-called physical and human infrastructure, elder care, child care, um, broadband, you know, roads and bridges and all those kinds of things. These are the education. Those are the things that economists typically associate with productivity enhancing investments, R&D, education, infrastructure. Childcare gets counted in that, by the way. For every dollar you put into early childhood education, the research suggests you get more than $7 back in return. So um, these are productivity enhancing. These are growth promoting. Uh, and as far as you know, how closely that parallels the situation in Canada, I don't know, but I will agree that you know, if you're every deficit matters, but the question is always deficits for whom and for what. So you can definitely you know, um, make more cash available to businesses or to consumers in ways that don't have the same benefits on the growth and productivity side, no question there, and that that carries heightened inflation risk when you're not also growing the productive capacity of the economy. That's the argument, Marc-Andre, and, and the debate is semantic on some level, but it represents two different points of view, which is investments versus, versus spending. Some people just see this as spending. Uh, you're talking about this as being an investment. Right. I think that is the, the line that, that's being drawn. And, I, you know, I just underline what Stephanie was saying. I, a major part of the recent budget was rolling out a, a child care program, yeah. early, child, early education program. And, you know, I think the consensus view, and I, I agree with it, is that that is productivity enhancing. That allows more women Absolutely. to enter the yeah. labor force. You expand the labor force. That's a classic contributor to capacity, right? This, this is well accepted across the spectrum in economics. So from that perspective, I think it, it, they've done some good things. I think they've been, you know, maybe a little bit slow on the infrastructure, like the physical infrastructure. I think a lot of people right. when they hear investment, they think bridges, they hear bridges, they hear roads, they hear, you know, sewers, that kind of stuff. Um, maybe this government's been a little slow on that side of things. They've, yeah. they've chosen- Because that is a, a very serious issue in this country and it's not being addressed anywhere in, in these right. budgets. I mean, I think they've leaned heavily on this idea of an infra infrastructure bank and, and these private public partnerships. I'm not yeah. a big fan of those, but I think that's yeah. partly why it's been slow, frankly. It's because they're not taking it on themselves. They're, they're waiting for private sector contributors to come, in, come into the game and that's just not happening yet anyway. Well, that's about the climate of whether or not people want to invest in a country, whether they're, you know, a, a major corporation or a smaller business looking to expand. And I think there's a lot of hesitation there. People are saying, OK, which way are we going? Is is government going to, you know, buy back the airlines and, and uh, the pipelines and all of these things? What's the role for the private sector if we're going to have a state controlled economy? And uh, and, you know, those are extreme positions. So how do you deal with that larger issue, Stephanie, of whether if government becomes the provider of, um, of, you know, an endless source of funds to do the programs that they choose, how do you make that a growth agenda and keep the politics out of it? Because that's what happens. People will fund the programs that they like. And, and we've certainly seen this on, uh, you know, in a lot of places where the pandemic becomes um, a cover, if I can put it that way, or a reason to do all the spending you wanted to do anyway, but which was not politically uh, acceptable at the time or pre-pandemic. Well, if if this is what happens in Canada, uh, I think you must be <laughs> almost alone in the world. It is certainly not the case that this is how uh, lawmakers, policymakers are behaving here. I mean, you, you're probably getting some of this filtering up uh, about what's happening, you know, the months long um, fights here over infrastructure. We can't even do the most basic things that everybody agrees on, right? Fixed structurally deficient bridges, uh, we can't get there. So there is, you know, I always find it sort of curious that um, there is often this belief that if you let 
politicians in on this secret of MMT, so-called, that they'll just run hog wild. They will be so enthusiastic. They can't wait to get together and hold hands on bipartisan legislation to do everything because all bets are off. The, the like you can afford to do everything. They don't want to do, they don't want to do the most basic things together. So the politics are a form of fiscal restraint because they don't have the two parties do not share the same values. They don't prioritize the same things when it comes to the federal budget. So if I were to walk into Congress and say, you know, I have all the Republicans and Democrats before me, and I said, listen, everyone, uh, economists agree that you've got three or four trillion dollars of non-inflationary fiscal space available to you still, right? Before you need to start thinking about offsets and all this, I just picked a number, right? Yeah. Uh, you all have three or $4 trillion. You don't need to offset the spending. You can use the fiscal space. So get together and work something out. Republicans say we want to use some of that fiscal space to do more tax cuts. We want to do, you know, more defense. We want whatever. And Democrats say we want to do climate and we want to do this. And we'd still have difficulty uh, passing things because the priorities are different for the party. So if the question, I think the way you asked it was sort of how do you, um, how do you take the politics out of it? And right. I don't think it's you don't to do that. You know, yeah. can, I, can I jump in on that? Pam? Sure, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, the Canadian context, when you have a majority government, some of that comes off the table. You can do a lot without really right. worrying about, but there are still real constraints. There's federal, provincial, um, challenges, right? Uh, and, and currently we have a minority government. So there's some of the things that Stephanie's talking about are, are, are true in Canada, maybe not quite the same way, but I think they're also true here and we can't lose sight of that. I don't, I, you know, I think especially the federal provincial nexus, uh, yeah. such a big. We don't even want to try to begin to explain that because it doesn't even make any sense in Canada. So there's, <laughs> there's uh, no sense going there, but I do want to take a look um, at Japan because when you, Look at all the, uh, I mean, they have been a, a forerunner on the whole quantitative easing approach. They, they kind of adopted that a, a long time ago. We have just recently in this country said, or we have heard finance officials say, that the fiscal anchor um, that they are going to use is the debt to GDP ratio. And that if we can get it down under 50%, that's going to be good. And that's sort of what we're aiming for. Uh, in Japan, if my numbers are even close to still accurate, 240%, 250% debt to GDP. Inflation is kind of under control and interest rates are around 2%. Is that a case for your approach? I muted the microphone because the house phone started to ring. Okay, uh, that's what it is, okay. I'm sorry about that. I don't even know the phone number for the house phone. I've certainly never answered it before. <laughs> I'm not going to now. No, uh, it's the joys of Zoom, Never mind. We'll just carry on. So look, a, a couple of things. One, uh, QE and MMT are not neighbors, cousins, allies, friends. <laughs> they, we, when, when Bernanke announced that the US was going to start up QE, the MMT economists were early critics of this. So I know that there's this perception out there that MMT is somehow about using the central bank to buy bonds to do QE, to make it possible for governments to spend, to you know, sort of hold their hand through the process. This has never been part of MMT. In fact, we started writing the literature that's now kind of the scholarly body of work that gets called MMT. We started this a quarter of a century ago. So this was long before there was, uh, you know, were central banks doing QE and all that. When it started, we said we were critical of this. Um, but are there important lessons from the Japanese experience in terms of the way the broken thinking, the way that we've been thinking about deficits, this belief that, you know, if you run large persistent deficits, it drives interest rates higher, that the driving of interest rates higher puts you at greater risk of fiscal crisis, debt sustainability becomes an issue, default becomes more likely and all the rest, then Japan is a very good 
I think, example in terms of where all of that thinking breaks down. And also QE, you know, this idea that QE is this powerful form of monetary stimulus. People think that QE is the central bank just jamming their foot on the accelerator and that it's monetary stimulus. And this is how you break free of, you know, low inflation and stagnation and all of this. And we've argued from the very beginning that uh, it doesn't work like that, that, um, you know, you probably have the pedals confused. There is a, a sense in which QE works more like a brake than an accelerator pedal. And so, um, but it is instructive to recognize that Japan has been running large fiscal deficits for 30 years, mm -hmm. that the 10 year at present is about 0% that the central bank, despite every effort uh, over you know, the decades, cannot move the needle on inflation, cannot hit their own 2% inflation target. So there are a lot of things that I think we can learn from the Japanese experience, but most of them are probably about what not to do. And by the way, I'll say one last thing. When the Japanese economy started to finally perform better and things were improving. This is when the Japanese government said, okay, now we have to get serious about the deficit. We're raising the consumption tax. And it drove the economy into recession three times, all three times following the increase in the consumption tax in order to try to reduce deficits, they drove the economy into recession. So they keep you know, these fits and starts, one foot on the brake, one on the gas, then they get scared and they, and they undermine the, the prosperity and the growth that they're starting to generate. I might just add that there's been a similar discourse in Canada where you'll mm -hmm. you recently you would have heard Senator Wallen that the people are proposing an increase in the GST. Um, it's almost templated from the Japan story. It seems like we haven't really learned much uh, when we look at that. But this notion of, be, of, of the quantitative easing being nowhere near a friend or an ally of MMT, where, where do you make that distinction on using the money supply to deal with the, the issue of the day, the problem of, uh, at, because on, on that level, it's, it looks like the same process. Okay, so what the central bank is doing, and you, you referenced the World War II passages uh, from the book earlier. And so it's, it's a bit like this, right? During World War II and in the immediate aftermath of World War II, the central bank, the Fed and Treasury agreed that the Federal Reserve was going to keep the so-called financing costs of the war down. And this was really more to do with reducing the interest payments that would be made to bondholders, because after all, interest payments are interest income to the bondholder. And with that income, you can turn around and spend into the economy. So if you keep the amount of interest income down, you are mitigating some of the potential inflationary pressures because people will have less income from interest available. So the central bank during and immediately after World War II managed interest rates in the same way the Bank of Japan is doing today. They pinned the 10 year and said the 10 year on US treasuries will not go above two and a half percent. We won't let it. And then they also anchored rates at the shorter end. So central banks can do that. They can do that uh, to, in a sense, accommodate fiscal policy. But what they're really accommodating is the price at which the government will service those obligations, not saying to the government, you can or can't spend. The spending is going to happen one way or the other. It's just at uh, how much of an interest subsidy are we going to provide bondholders? If the central bank is willing to help manage that subsidy down, then you can reduce the amount of interest income that you're paying to passive holders of government securities. By the way, risk-free, right? You can, you can manage the reward that you are willing to provide holders of these risk-free assets. Uh, I, I want to come back to just to the, the, the role of the banks, if I can, because the US, the Fed, the central bank there really uh, focuses on inflation and employment. Uh, is that fair to say? And, and what we do here is really we focus on inflation, obviously, but also exchange rate because we're so tied to other economies. Um, so let's just take a look at, at those two issues uh, on, on your side, Stephanie, the inflation and the employment. So do you think there's still lots of room with all of this spending um, that is is that President Biden has 
um, proposed, that that is going to keep, that you're going to be able to keep employment or, uh, sorry, inflation at a reasonable rate, say under 2%. Well, we'll see how much of what he's proposed actually materializes in the form of legislation that makes it all the way to his desk. It's we got a big uphill climb ahead mm -hmm. of us. So I do not believe, as I sit here today, that we are going to see the 4.1 trillion that he has asked for. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that somebody like Larry Summers has been talking about it, the inflation risk associated with the spending. Let, let's just get this over with. He calls MMT voodoo economics. So let's carry on. Okay. So <laughs> interestingly, let's let's give me a moment since you, since you did that. Uh, let's talk about Larry Summers and how how much credibility, how much weight should we give to Larry's concerns? Larry was part of the team that talked President Obama into a much smaller stimulus on the grounds that the trillion dollar figure would be too much and that the economy was gonna recover more quickly and it didn't really need all that fiscal support, wrong. Larry was the guy who, as the Republicans were preparing to push their tax cuts through in 2017, warned, went all over the media, warning that if the Republicans were successful in passing these tax cuts, these are his words, the U.S. government would be living on a shoestring for decades to come because of the because of the impact on the deficit. He said, when the next downturn comes, Congress won't have the firepower to respond using fiscal policy because they blew it all on the tax cuts. Wrong. COVID happened, and Congress spun out multi-trillion-dollar packages with ease. The deficits of the past did not constrain the ability of the government to spend in the future. Larry's been wrong on big things in the very recent past. Now, here he is today saying that he's deeply concerned that this is some of the most irresponsible fiscal policy he's seen in 40 years. He's talking about overheating. He's talking about you know heightened inflation, return to the 1970s kind of thing. Look, I think the reality is that the kinds of investments that this administration is talking about are productivity enhancing. Larry uses a bathtub analogy, and he says you're going to overflow the water in the bathtub, and that's the metaphor for inflation. But if the spending is growing the size of the bathtub, which is to say the productive capacity of the economy, then you can handle more water in the tub safely because you're growing the productive capacity of the economy through making investments in R&D and infrastructure and child and elder care, all the rest of it. So, right. um, you know, I do not share, and most economists I, I talk to do not share, uh, and Wall Street clearly does not share. Look at the tenure today. Uh, I think yesterday it was down below uh, one five. So, you know, the, the evidence is just simply not there. Anything. Okay, so happen. let's put Larry aside and yeah. look at inflation and employment and what you think is going to happen stateside. You're, this is for me again? Yes, this for oh. you. And then I'll go to Mark Andre. Yeah. Well, we are still down some 10 million jobs compared right. to trend pre-COVID. So again, digging out of a very, very deep whole. We have yep. some income support in place in the form of unemployment, but we've got 25 or so governors across the country who have announced that they are going to suspend the federal government's top up of unemployment, which is providing more income for people to consume with, which means with income and consumption, you are someone's customer, you are supporting sales and, and uh, revenue in that firm. So we're undermining the COVID relief money already, not to say that a lot of the support is gonna disappear anyway in September. So we're, we're facing some headwinds is what I'm saying. This mm -hmm. idea that all we have is tailwinds and this is where the inflationary pressure comes from. No, there are headwinds uh, in the way right now. So the question is, can we offset them and keep the recovery underway and allow it to strengthen and get these 10 million people uh, back in the labor force. We got a jobs number last month, uh, May, we're just above a half a million. We need to be closer to a million a month 
for a long string of months to get where we need to be. So we are gonna see some inflationary pressures. There's no question, bouncing back out of a pandemic with the supply side you know, dislocations. And so there's gonna be some inflationary pressure and everybody understands that. Jerome Powell uh, understands it. Janet Yellen. Yeah. I, I'm with them. I am in agreement. I think these are uh, mainly transitory uh, price increases. Markets will work these out as supply responds to the uh, increased pressures and, and capacity is rebuilt and so forth. Unemployment could take a much longer time, longer especially time. if we get the fiscal wrong. Mark Andre, that, that it is an issue here because what we saw uh, even last summer during the, the, the kind of brief relief we had, and again this year, that uh, people are, are actually making more money staying home. And this is true of younger people, particularly because um, they're not in, in high paying jobs out there making more money staying home uh, off COVID relief than they would be by going out and helping these small restaurants or small businesses get back on their feet. Um, how worrisome is that for you or is it? I, I, that doesn't worry me. I mean, I think, you know, in many cases, those are probably very rational decisions given COVID not being gone. It was still here. People are still getting sick. Um, so that'd be my first thought. I mean, the other thing I'd say is our unemployment rate here in Canada is still quite high. It's been trending up the last couple of months, as you know, uh, yeah. because of the lockdowns and the kind of third wave, fourth wave. Uh, so there's a lot of capacity left to be absorbed here. I'm, this, I'm not worried about this inflation um, fear-mongering. I also think the consensus view is similarly not worried. Bank of Canada and others have, have made it clear that they're, they're viewing some of this, some of the recent increases as temporary and, and a reflection of what happened last year more than what's going to happen in the future. And then I think the last thing I'd say is that, you know, our currency, as I mentioned earlier, is, is really strong. This is a great opportunity for Canadian firms to invest. And I think they're getting some signals here in Saskatchewan, um, Senator Wall, and you would know there's been some major announcements about big yeah. investments here in Potash, and other sectors that I think really portend well for, for our capacity. If you want to think of that bathtub, I, I think there's some signs that that bathtub is going to be getting bigger. Um, and so, you know, and, and we have all this residual capacity in terms of the workforce. So again, I don't see any kind of persistent inflation pressures here in Canada. So again, to put this in some larger context, um, Stephanie, and, and we'll come to you. I, I You were an advisor to... Um, uh, to Bernie Saunders when he was seeking the leadership. I think you're probably advising or had advised some of the, uh, the current contenders before uh, uh, Biden was selected. What, what is the, you know, with the spending that the both of you are talking about, that whether it's childcare in this country and, and, and other social programs that are being created, is this kind of a, uh, a, a back to the FDR, New Deal, a chicken in every pot kind of thing, full employment, everybody should have a job. And if there's not one out there, we should create one. Like, what, what's the larger picture here? I think that uh, those comparisons are mostly overblown. Uh, I think that what this administration is proposing is far more modest uh, in terms of the scope of the ambition than the, the large scale, more transformative programs that we saw under the New Deal. This president is not talking about directly employing millions of people as we did with the Works Progress Administration, the Civilian Conservation Corps, National Youth. There's some scope for that, but on a very, mm -hmm. very small scale. We're not talking about open-ended commitments to guarantee employment opportunities for everyone. What you're hearing from this president though, I think is different and, and you know, it, it is encouraging, uh, I will say, to hear him say that what he wants to do is preside over an economy where the labor market is functioning so well that employers have to compete to find workers, that he wants to see workers in a position where they don't have to take low paying um, jobs that are, you know, it'll push wages up. Yeah. Yeah. He wants to yeah. see some catch up. It's been decades since workers in this country saw an increase in their real earnings. And so he'd like to see some catch up there. But, you know, things like making child care more affordable and and dealing with elder care in an aging society, those are just sort of in a sense, no brainers. I mean, you, you have to prepare for the demographic changes that are underway. And I think 
tried to do things policy-wise to accommodate what you know what you see coming down the pipe. So, and and is there some sense on your part that uh, there is um, a desire to redis redistribute income in a more direct way rather than just through that mechanism of if there's competition for employers then or for employers then wages will go up but is there an undercurrent of income redistribution well i would say maybe yes on the tax side this is where i think the how he is approaching the question of paying for these packages that he's trying to work out a deal for now where he has made the commitment to, in a sense, hold harmless families that are making less than $400,000 a year, you won't see a penny increase in your federal uh, tax obligation. He wants to lay the burden for you know paying more at the feet of corporations and wealthier families. And I think that is designed to redress some of the, again, decades long widening of the gap in terms of income and wealth, but he's not going for the sort of things that a, a Senator Elizabeth Warren or a Senator right. Bernie Sanders and others are talking about, right? Where we have this new piece that came out yesterday that's making tons of headlines here about how the wealthiest people in this country managed to pay nothing in federal income tax. So people are saying, well, that's because they have almost no income. It's all wealth. So that's restarting this conversation about wealth taxes, but I, the, this administration, isn't there. Yeah, so. that's, that's a very interesting point. Mark andrea I, I want, also want to hear from you and then maybe have Stephanie react to it. We, we've got, or at least many people think we've got a housing, a serious housing problem uh, in this country. As usual, it's never such an issue in Saskatchewan as it is in uh, Toronto and Vancouver with inflated housing prices, but there is an entire generation that's being priced out of the home ownership market. Absolutely. I, I, I think this is a real problem for Canada. And I feel policymakers feel they're a little stuck. They've been playing on the margins for as long as I've been thinking about this issue for 10, 15 years and haven't really been able to kind of slow the machine down. And I, I think, you know, I'm not sure what the solution is, frankly. It's it's a it's a problem that is, has some universality. If you look at other big, pushing up the interest rates hurts everybody and, and right? that generation well, in particular. Yeah. Right. And they're stuck and they're they're worried about precipitating a housing a demand collapse, you know, in terms of yeah. and consumption. And so I, I, I think they are a little bit stuck, but I, I'm not and I'm not frankly, I'm not sure what the solution is. Uh, maybe Stephanie yeah. has some ideas, but Stephanie, you know, just yeah, go ahead. This will be our, our kind of our final issue. But if you have thoughts on, I mean, you you have a, a lot of activity in your sector, but but it it's not as there's not the negative component. At least we don't see it that. Oh, there. Oh, yeah. I mean, we we have ser very serious issues in okay. terms of housing affordability, home prices. Okay. Um, this idea that you're locking. Uh, millions of people out of home ownership. They'll never imagine how they could come up with the down payment for you know, uh, the median home or even a starter home uh, for okay. crying out loud. So, so same issue. problems, but you know, we, we drive our economy in so many ways on um, real estate, it's home buying. And yeah. we did this under President George W. Bush and the Ownership Society and with Greenspan as chair, we had exactly the same thing underway. We had a, an emerging housing bubble and a housing boom, and there was reluctance to do anything to undermine it because as Greenspan said, this is the source of, this is what's growing our economy, right? So we need to uh, do things, I think, to, um, you know, in terms of the affordability, we, we have to say that you cannot lend to someone uh, to purchase a home that where you know that it's going to take 50% of their income, disposable yeah, income. I mean, that's the they issue here them. too, that we're, we're having, which is if you yeah. put those restrictions on, it makes it almost impossible for first timers I mean, to get in. Can I jump in? Because I mean, we yeah. do have those rules here, but they aren't, yeah. they aren't working is the problem. Right. I, you know, I'd right. be remiss if I didn't say from Saskatchewan, there is another solution. We could be investing in um, social housing, cooperative housing. There are other mechanisms that this government yeah. and other governments have not explored that address that supply side in a different way. And I think yeah. that's been the big policy failure here in Canada. Uh, I, I just, I want to thank you both so much, but before we wrap things up, I want to bring Greg McDougall in. Uh, he's the guy that sits there and crunches all the numbers, he and Steve, and I know he's been listening to this and then dying to jump in. So Greg, jump. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. And again, thank you, uh, 
Stephanie and Marc Andre for joining us today. It's it's always a well humbling and a very exciting. Um, just it's it's a two part question, I guess, and it's the tough one because I'm I I, I assume Marc Andre and I have gone through this similar experience based on our, our age or our, our hairline, but we we spent <laughs> we spent. 20, 30 years hearing about using a fiscal anchor to set priorities. And I, I understood and I heard uh, very closely your, your response in terms of the politics and so on. But it, it's a real adjustment to say, you know, a, a, debt, to, a debt to GDP ratio of 29%, 33%, and then jumping to 50% and accepting that we might be in that range for a couple of decades. And, and that's, I guess, my first observation because it's a, it's a really hard behavioral acceptance. And, and there are a lot of people who work really hard, including uh, former governors of the banks of Canada and elsewhere that have said it's, it, it's, it's going to be a challenge. So that's my first observation that I'd like to see again, some comment on. And then finally, um, okay, so we accept this, the people who are going to be stuck with and stuck might not be the right word based on what we've been hearing, but the people who are gonna be challenged with this are very much those people who are, you know, 20 to 35 years old. And as a professor, <laughs> I understand now someone with a residential phone with a family, <laughs> um, my, my question would be, how do you engage that, that demographic, that group into this discussion? So kind of two parts, one on the fiscal oh. anchor, the other around so Stephanie, take that on. Look, I think that what you have to do, what we all have to do is start dialoguing about federal finances in a more useful way. These references to government borrowing and the public debt and the burden on the next generation, this is all very unhelpful. We should not do this. It is, these are phrases and words that are just simply not applicable when we're talking about the currency issuer. What is this thing we call the national debt? What is it? It is the outstanding stock of US government bonds. That's what it is, okay? What's another way to refer to it? Another way to refer to it is that they are simply the dollars that the government spent into the economy over the course of history, did not tax back. Those dollars are currently being saved in the form of US government bonds, part of the broader money supply. It's part of the broader Canadian money supply. You have interest-bearing currency and you have non-interest-bearing currency. And it's up to you. You are the issuer of both of these instruments. You can issue the non-interest-bearing stuff and just leave it in people's hands, or you can make the choice, and that is the key word, to remove some of the Canadian dollars, the currency that you have spent into the economy and replace it with an interest-bearing form of currency. But that is your choice. And that is a very good thing from the perspective of the person who now has the interest-bearing form of Canadian dollars, right? It's not a burden on them. It's part of their wealth. But can you keep doing it at infinitum, I think is the question, because if you're 25 years old today or 30 years old today and you can't buy a house uh, and all you see in front of you is, is um, you know, of course governments are spending, but, but no one's paying the piper there and that somehow that's gonna come back and bite them through inflation, through whatever the, the issue may be. All right, so you, you did, Senator, just say the, the, the relevant risk is inflation. So it doesn't matter whether your historical record leaves you with a debt to GDP ratio of 20% or 50% or 70% or whatever, what matters is did the spending or the tax cuts that produced the deficits that led to the increase in the issuance of treasuries, was it inflationary? And if it's not, again, you brought up Japan, so let's, let's remember Japan. In my lifetime, okay, I'm 51 years old. In my lifetime, the federal government's budget has been in surplus four times. Deficits are the norm. We've been running deficits my whole life. The national debt has been with us my whole life. It ain't going anywhere. And taxes have been cut and cut and cut and cut. So the, the idea that you know what you've done in the past necessitates a fiscal response in the future, it doesn't. It's up to you and your colleagues whether you vote for tax increases or spending cuts in the future that make life harsher for the population 
And if you do that because like the Japanese, you believe that you have to raise taxes to deal with the deficit, you mm -hmm. can end up you know, undermining the strength of your economic recovery and, and, and by the way, producing larger deficits because you'll tank your GDP and so your debt ratio will go up as your economy um, suffers. Why so don't we give a, a final word to Marc-Andre uh, Pigeon here on the Canadian scene? Well, I just think that the, the, what Stephanie just outlined is so true. I, I, I'd argue in some sense, though, Canadians have traditionally been um, in, in they, they respond viscerally to these words, deficits and debt. I, I, Stephanie mentioned this earlier, but I actually looked at 50 years of polling data. Yep. You put the word deficit in a question and people will say no. Right. It's yep. it's about reframing the debate and and getting real. I've also spoken to senior government officials who understand this, but rhetorically will not go there. And I think so part of the challenge is changing the conversation and we need to be real. I think Stephanie was saying, I'll go back to that term. Real <laughs> is, the, is the key point here all around. So I'll stop there. That is great. Uh, Greg, you've, you've got your comments. Oh, thank That's you. great. I, I cannot thank you both enough. This has really been uh, an interesting vantage on what we are going through in both countries, but certainly around the world and uh, a very articulate um, explanation of this. Stephanie Kelton, the author of The Deficit Myth. Now this is the paperback. There was, uh, there was a hardcover as well. Professor of Economics and Public Policy, Stony Brook University, Long Island, New York. And Dr. Marc-Andre Pigeon, professor at the Johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy, looking at those issues like the study of cooperatives, which you'd like to apply to the housing issues so that we can deal with that younger uh, generation. So it's really, uh, it's been terrific to hear from both of you. Thanks so much. Thanks to Greg and Steve. And that's it for the monthly, uh, this month, I'm Pamela Wallen. And that's why government analytics takes the time to crunch the numbers to dig and discover the real story, the data story. Thank you for joining us on The Monthly.